Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday in detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the Biden administration's current outlook for America, an update on the French crackdown on Islam, and how Libya could get the Caucasus treatment from foreign powers. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news, shall we? The Mexican army is now implicated in a 2014 abduction of 43 college students. Uh, Haiti's citizens march on Capitol, demanding the resignation of their president over accusations of corruption. The plummet in the value of the Lebanese pound makes college tuition unaffordable overnight. And an interesting thing that I saw here was... Wyoming to build an elaborate series of pipelines to capture CO2 from coal power plants and they're using that to redirect the gas underground to increase pressure in oil deposits. And I found this to be very, very interesting as it is what I call the great environmentalist dilemma. So basically to prevent CO2 pollution caused by fossil fuels, um... You assist in the productivity of the fossil fuel industry. Very, very interesting. I like it. And it's very smart. That My first response to this was just, wow, that is smart. Because um, the thing that I've learned about um, some of these shale oil fields is that they lose their pressure very quickly. And so like most of the oil you get out of like a shale field uh, comes in the first the, what couple of months of its operation and then it comes down to a trickle because the pressure is gone um i don't know if they can use this for shale oil deposits but they can definitely use it for conventional oil deposits i'm sure some breakthrough will come along and allow them to use it for shale as well and lots of oil will be available but very interesting and the Federal Bureau of Land Management has already allocated over a thousand miles of federal land to this project. Um, we'll see if it stays uh, afloat with the Biden administration. And before we get to that, we'll talk about the U.S. a little more. The U.S. has confirmed a sale of Patriot missiles to Morocco as part of the Moroccan military's modernization efforts. Uh, so, a decent bit of friendly diplomacy between the U.S. and Morocco um, these past couple weeks as we recognized their sovereignty over the West Sahara a couple weeks back. Uh, and and that was a part of an agreement for them to join onto the uh, Israeli peace deal, which is now being dubbed the Abraham Accords. So that was the concession America made for that. And now we're giving them Patriot missiles. Good old... Good old freedom side. But while we're still talking about America, we shall now get into the meat, starting with the U.S. Biden administration. Now, Joe Biden has been inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States of America. And in less than a week, the new president has signed uh, a series of executive orders, um, 30 executive orders uh, so far. Sure, he's signing more, and either yesterday or today that I just haven't uh, picked up on, because I, um, well, the episode's pretty jam packed as it is. But here's a few of these executive orders, just to give you an idea of what we're dealing with here. Um, an executive order on federal worker protections. Trump had um, made it easier to fire uh, federal employees. There was like a class. He re redefined like the class system of the federal employees like there were certain levels and if you got you could be demoted to a certain level that would make it easier for you to for uh them to fire you if you were a federal worker federal worker so biden got rid of that he took away funding for the border wall um he did an executive order essentially mandating the reopening of schools he did an executive order 
mandating uh, masks on federal land, which <laughs> he himself has already violated. Um, anyway, uh, he did an executive order allowing non-citizens to be counted in the census and in congressional appoint apportionment. Now, I've talked about congressional apportionment a bit in the past, um, namely because the, it was the Trump administration that made it so that non-citizens could not be counted, and I made it abundantly clear that states that had more illegal immigrants were going to be very, very negatively impacted by that, and he is reversing that with this executive order. So I'd imagine that this combined with his other executive order... Um, that basically lifted the what was it the travel ban on muslim countries uh would basically ah. anyway there's lots of illegal immigrants that are not going to be counted in the congressional apportionment um he's canceled the licensing on the keystone xl pipeline uh he has rejoined the paris climate accord which i don't think you can do that unilaterally but okay i guess we'll just behave as though we were a part of it until it's like official um he's continued the deferral of student loan payments uh so that's good i got a voicemail from a lovely listener of mine asking me to cover the u.s china relations given the new biden administration now if we were under the previous administration there wouldn't really be too much to focus on given the direction that the Trump administration was taking the country which was although wasn't quite isolationism as much as it was disengagement and retrenchment which did lead to tensions but over time those tensions would dissipate uh I basically talked about that and I believe it was my first episode where I said that if the Americans get their industrial base back well They'll, the Chinese are going to fall off the radar for America's attention span very quickly, just like the Middle East did when we became energy independent, uh, or at least until this administration. But now that we have a new administration under Joe Biden, my response, so much for isolationism. <laughs> um, and again, I think it's important to state that Trump wasn't quite an isolationist, but his policies were taking us out of engagements that we had really no business being in. And now we are back in Syria. We have troops uh, increasing presence in Syria, and that was on Inauguration Day. Um, so, uh, I don't like it. But as far as U.S.-China relations go... I think that they will improve, and I use that in quotation marks, not because of the foreign policy being made um, to be more friendly, but rather because we'll go back to more one-sided deals and agreements that benefit China far more than they benefit America. Uh, if they benefit America, um, well, the American, the average American people anyway, and the politicians and rich people will benefit from this regardless um now if you are in china this is looking like it's going to be a very nice four to eight years if you are american you're going to be wondering where all the jobs went and so to summarize u.s china relations will invert from being tense at the national level while at ease on the individual level um, which, given the direction of the Trump administration, that national-level tension would dissipate over time, um, and it would be at ease across the board. Uh, it's going to invert from that to being at ease on the national level, but tense at the individual level, namely as Americans blame China for taking their jobs, and it would only be a matter of time before some of those Americans took power in the U.S. government which would lead to national tensions on top of individual tensions in the long term. So, I guess we can be on the lookout for this now, given it's going to be a longer, a long-term trend. Um, we'll see if the Biden administration proves me wrong, but uh, we'll be on the lookout for that.
Uh, yeah. All right. So that's the U.S. Biden administration. Um, we'll we'll give him his chance. I know Trump was robbed of his, but we'll give Biden his chance. Maybe maybe he'll do something really really good. Who knows? I hope so. I'm not gonna hope for him to do bad because you know I live here. <laughs> but I digress. We're moving on to France. Now we haven't talked about France for a couple weeks. Namely because they kept eating up my news cycle. And I made like three episodes in a row talking about France. But we're back to France. I took a nice break. Let some developments actually happen. And now we have uh, three out of France's eight Muslim community groups slash federations. They have refused to sign the anti-extremism charter. Now, a brief summary for uh, the situation in France um, there were lots of beheadings uh, being committed by migrants who were primarily Islamic or of Muslim descent uh, within the French borders on French citizens. This eventually culminated in the beheading of a teacher, Samuel Patty, over his depictions of Allah in a cartoon, uh, which the Islamic community did not like, and so he was beheaded by one of his students and that led to that essentially was the straw that broke the camel's back and now the french government is going all in on cracking down on islam and the flagship of this effort the flagship effort of this effort is the anti-extremism charter um so that's the brief summary of the situation here um now the remaining five of the eight uh, federations, the Muslim community groups in France, they actually did sign on to the charter, but the three that were dissenting and didn't sign, uh, they expressed concerns that it would weaken the trust between French Muslims and the French government, which is kind of a pretty valid point, I guess. Uh, Nate, I'll, we'll get into that when we talk about what the charter kind of sought to accomplish or in what it demanded in a minute. Uh, they believed that it would demand of Muslims in France. Oh, wait, no, 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 no. That's, I misread my notes. Uh, they also believed that it was prejudicial towards Muslims in France, which is also a pretty decent point to make. Now, we'll get into what the charter actually wanted, and you'll kind of see where they come from. Um, the charter wants slash demands of Muslims in France is that French Muslim communities do not exercise political Islam. Um, so basically they don't try to enforce Sharia law or try to enforce the tenets of their religion at a political level onto other citizens of the country or onto the residents of their neighborhoods. So there's that. The, there's the denunciation of female circumcisions. They, the charter demands the denunciation of forced marriages, and the charter also seeks to establish a national council of imams to vet the practices of imams around the country. And so, for those who are kind of unfamiliar with Islam, think of an imam as kind of like a, a pastor or a bishop, kind of like that. I'm not too familiar with... Uh, Islam myself, but that's kind of like the best way I can look at it right now. Uh, so there's that, a national council of them to vet the practices of imams around the country. So you can see where these, um, you can see where their concerns are coming from, the three federations that didn't sign on to the charter. And given what happened leading up to this, you can also see where the French government and the French people are coming from when they demand this anti-extremism charter. And we'll see where all this goes. I don't imagine that the three federations holding out are going to be, if, well, allowed to stay that way, especially given that they, the French government now has a clear majority uh, who have signed on to the charter. And they're probably going to move on with it and impose it regardless of these three dissenters. So expect them to move forward with this uh, this charter moving forward. Um, 
Another thing that to be on the lookout for, and this is something that completely passed over my head in the last episode when we were talking about Brexit, uh, was the unofficial precedent rule. Now, I've talked about this a, a little bit in some of my other episodes, where controversial actions and decisions uh, in Europe, the European governments really don't like making hard stances or, well, they don't like taking hard stances on controversial issues. But when other European nations do them, then you start to see more European countries follow in those footsteps as the precedent has now been set in Europe. So I wasn't even thinking about that when I was talking about the perpetual secession crisis for the EU, because now when you look at Britain and Brexit in that light, the precedent has been set. You can leave the EU, and in time, the British are going to start to do well for themselves, and you, the perpetual session crisis kicks into full gear. I wasn't even thinking about the unofficial precedent rule at the time, but that's going to play into it as well. The precedent has been set. I expect the EU is going to be dealing with the perpetual secession crisis for the rest of the decade and the rest of the the next few decades. But as far as France goes, they are setting the precedent now for cracking down on Islam and Muslims in general and Muslim extremism. So now it's we can keep our eyes open for other countries who begin to do the same cuz um we'll, we'll see cuz most countries prior to this, um, would have lambasted you for even suggesting doing anything like this, but now here we are. So, it's going to be very interesting to see who begins to follow in the footsteps of the French, on top of who begins to follow in the footsteps of the British, uh, moving forward. So, keep your eyes open for that. Um, yeah. Alright, now, we're going to move on to Libya. Um... Now we've talked we've also talked about Libya a lot on this channel, this little podcast of mine, namely because not of what Libya is, and I think I made this clear, it's not Libya itself that's interesting. I'm sorry to all my Libyan viewers, um because Libya is a, a desert, but it's where Libya is that's interesting because they're at this crossroads between a whole bunch of other powers. And that are stronger than them and have historically exerted influence over them. And in an era where countries are going to go back to doing that, um, this is going to be a hot spot. Well, it's already a hot spot. So looking at what happens here uh, could set the stage for what countries do moving forward. And we'll, I'll kind of explain that as we go along. But... Starting today's story on Libya, the Tripoli Protection Force rejects an agreement to the process of establishing a new government, uh, a process which was brokered by the UN to end the Libyan civil war. Uh, and they were going to end it via an election, which is to be held in December of this year on the 24th. So I guess this is kind of an update as well. I talked about that election, but I wasn't sure if it was going to be in 2020 or in uh, this year. And now we can confirm it's going to be in December of this year. So there's that. And I believe I mentioned in the episodes where I talked about this that I didn't think it was going to end very well. And given that the Tripoli Protection Force, which is one of the largest militia groups in Tripoli, which is, if I'm not mistaken, the capital city of Libya... So, their location makes them important, but the fact that they're already rejecting this agreement process uh, to this new election tells you that this election is already in contention. It's already in contention. So, if the elections afterwards are contested, which I believe is going to be highly likely, um, we could see Libya destabilize further. And it's kind of hard to imagine that, given that they're already in a civil war. But, again, you, when you have this massive, this large militia, I wouldn't I can call them massive, but they're large 
and they're in a strategic location, the capital city of the country, which I don't imagine the capital is going to be moved to a different city. So they are in a very strategic position. They're already rejecting this process. They're probably not going to accept the results of the election either, especially if it doesn't go their way. So this election, if it is contested, and again, that's very, very highly likely, uh, Turkey or some other foreign power like Egypt, for example, could take a page out of the Russian handbook and send a couple thousand peacekeepers into Libya, giving that power... And again, it, my guess would be Turkey or Egypt. It could sending in those quote unquote peacekeepers into Libya would be giving that power de facto control over the country. Uh, and there wouldn't be much the Libyans themselves could do about it. Uh, Libya isn't very populated. It's um, I believe it's under 10 million people. So a lot of their neighbors have more demographic heft to them for a, an occupation of the country. And given that most of the population is on the coast because the country is a desert, it, you don't need to occupy too many places to pacify the country. Um, so that being said, uh, there is serious potential for foreign powers to step in, pull a Russia, and occupy, I mean, send peacekeepers into Libya. Now, the countries that I see capable of doing so uh, the list is America, France, Egypt, Turkey, and maybe Italy due to proximity. Oh, so there's that. Now, the countries that are likely to do that would be America under the Joe Biden administration. They sent troops into Syria on day one. So we, we know we're back in the Middle East, boys. Um, so countries likely to do that are America, Egypt, because Egypt is already involved in the conflict, and Turkey. And the reason I leave out uh, France and Italy is because Italy has kind of stayed back this entire time, even in like the showdown in the Eastern Mediterranean between Turkey and France and Greece. Um, the Italians stayed out of it. Uh, and I brought up that they kind of have like a win-win scenario where they have no reason whatsoever to even get involved because whoever wins in the Eastern Med is going to send natural gas and oil through Italian waters to get to Europe. It, it doesn't matter who wins. The Italians win regardless. So Italy, I don't expect to get involved in any of this unless they're going to be, for whatever reason, uh, stepping into Occupy Libya itself so that they can control the oil there. Um, and again, with multiple pipelines being built to go through Italian waters and territories and to Italy itself, I don't see Italy stepping in. We could see some. We could see a change, because um, we talked about the Italian government. I believe that their government just barely managed to hold on, but we'll see where that goes. We talked about elections in Italy, and again, one of the what ifs we talked about was whether or not the government would hold. That was the first what if that needed to kind of falter in order for the scenario to play out. Speculation is always the fun part. But that being said. Everything we talked about is still going to be in play moving forward because they're going to have elections again eventually. And I don't expect the right-wing parties to, well, lose too much popularity in the meantime. So Italy will still be in play for the foreseeable future. And as far as France, well, France is preoccupied with their crackdown on Islam and the Yellow Vests and the rioters. And the anti-lockdown pro if France is in a bit of a situation right now, and I brought this up in the rel in the relative power of nations, where France is tied down by domestic issues, bringing the relative power well bringing their power relative to other countries down, which opens the door for those other countries to make moves, money moves at that. So I don't expect the French to get involved, but. We have Biden administration. They're back in the Middle East. I expect them to turn their gaze towards Libya, uh, or at least to look at the situation in Libya. We don't know if they'll actually do this, but 
it's more likely now than it was a couple weeks back. So, the America. And on to the, uh, the other likely countries of occupying. Uh, America was one of the three. We have Egypt. Now, Egypt is a pretty big country. They have, well, not so much big in size, although they are decently big in size. They have 100 million people. So that is some serious demographic heft to them, uh, which would mean an occupation of Libya's uh, around 7 million wouldn't be too much if they could get their troops in place. Egypt does have a pretty large and sizable army in the region, while not qualitatively on par with that of, say, France or Italy or America. It's large, capable, and nearby, and can walk into Libya. So that's always going to be something uh, to take note of when you're talking about militaries, the ability of them to get to the place in question, and Egypt can, in fact, get to Libya. They're already involved. I believe that they're involved in a very, very minor way militarily. Uh, probably because they, they're probably still reeling from the effects of the revolution they had uh, about, what, a couple of years ago. Not entirely sure how far back, but I don't imagine that they're in too much of a situation to go sending whole armies into other countries yet. Well, we'll see how things turn out in Sudan and Ethiopia, who are still powder kegs in their own right for the region, but uh, Egypt is going to be a country to look out for should the election in Libya be contested, highly likely, uh, but on to the more interesting player, in my opinion, Turkey. Now, after the what happened in the Caucasus, I basically say, stated that Turkey now has only really one direction that they can go. They've been trying to do the expansionist thing. And now there's only one direction they can go. The Caucasus are on lockdown, and the Russians control every avenue in and out. And all those mercenaries that Turkey sent to fight on Azerbaijan's behalf are now being removed. Well, actually have been removed. And Turkey can't go into Greece because that's... The, they'll invoke a European response, um, at least for the time being. We'll see how the EU and NATO go moving forward. So, for the time being, Europe is off-limits, and the Caucasus are now indefinitely off-limits, which leaves only one direction, the South. Now, I follow Peter Zihan, and he believes, along with a lot of other geopolitical uh, people, believe that Turkey is going to be a major power and player in the century moving forward. Peter says that there's not much for Turkey to gain going south. I greatly disagree. And I made that clear. That there's a whole host of things Turkey could get going south. Oil of Iraq, Syria, and Saudi Arabia. They could take the holy cities, Mecca, Medina. They could take, they could take uh, Jerusalem. They could become an unparalleled champion and leader of the Islamic world faith and Islamic world, which would give them strings and friends in a whole host of different places that they could pull on and rely on for different things and different reasons. There's the massive market of over 100 million people in Egypt if they were to occupy it, an internal market for Turkey to force their, in, their industrial manufactured finished goods into without having to worry about exports to other countries or overseas, no trade barriers within their own country. And there's the Suez Canal, over 18 trillion in trade every year. Uh, maybe that went down for 2020, but I imagine it's gonna come back up in time. 18 trillion is a volume of trade on par with the US economy. So you can imagine what a, say, a small fee a small service fee on that would give the Turkish. Uh, it would be a massive boost to their economy. They would effectively be in control of the new spice trade. And they could even try to link up with China's Belt and Road to have a land route to export oil to China, uh, putting them in competition with the Russians, but more money for the new Ottoman Empire. So, 
I believe that Turkey has a lot to gain going south, and now that going south is their only option, I expect them to be heavily involved in Syria. I expect them to be heavily involved in Libya. Now, they're already buddy-buddy with the government of Libya, so should things turn more south than they already are for the Libyan government, Turkey, having just been dealt a backhand blow by the Russians, could take a page out of Russia's book and send in their own peacekeepers to stop the fighting in Libya. You know, humanitarian effort. Don't mind that we're putting don't mind that we're raising our flag in your country. It's okay. We're here to stop the fight. <laughs> but I see I'm not entirely sure if Turkey can do that, but I believe well, they wouldn't exactly have to do some sort of amphibious invasion. The I'd imagine the Libyan government, if they were promised to stay in power, would just allow the Turks to walk in. And suddenly you have thousands of Turkish troops in Libya. Uh, pacifying the countryside. And then the leader of Libya dies, magically. Um, he, he, um, he had suicidal thoughts, and now they need a new leader in Libya. Oh, would you look at that? Erdogan has a solution. Erdogan is the leader of Turkey, for those who don't know. We could see major power plays. I'm expecting Turkey to at least consider this option. They are probably the most likely to do something like that, and it wouldn't exactly be hard for them to do it. All three of these countries, America, Egypt, and Turkey, um, have the capability to get into Libya and project troops there indefinitely for more than any other country, really. Because, well, America can deploy troops overseas. That's kind of been our, uh, that's kind of been our, uh, our meta for the past couple decades. Egypt has a land border, Turkey has a friendly government and a friendly port in the country. So, new Ottoman Empire? Maybe. I say Turkey has a lot to gain from going south, and now they only have one way they can go, and that is south. So be on the lookout for Turkish involvement, probably through mercenaries and drones. Um, they're gonna learn from every conflict they get into. Um, they're already using lasers. I expect that they'll be putting lasers on drones whenever they can. Uh, yeah, Turkey's probably going to rewrite the rules of war in the Middle East in time. But for now, all of these are going to be very interesting things to look at moving forward. And we'll, uh, we'll talk about another country in the Middle East and how they play into another major uh, showdown that we'll be dealing with for decades. Iraq. We'll get into that in just a bit. All right, we're back. And now we're going to talk about Iraq. Iraq has recently cut crude shipments to major, well, many major Indian refineries by between 10 to 20%. That's pretty big. Uh, and that's, it's going to remain that way for the rest of 2021. Uh, uh, shipments to all Asian consumers have been reduced in an OPEC effort to bring prices back up by deliberately strangling the supply. Now, that is all Asian consumers except for China, who prepaid uh, around 2.5 billion USD for Iraqi oil. So, uh, to kind of put this into perspective, around 400,000 BPD, and that's barrels of oil per day, is now not going to India, but to China instead. Now, why is that important? Well, people who are uh, listeners of the past couple episodes know exactly why. But it's important because it's going to increase tensions and animosities between the... Well, I think it's pretty obvious it's going to increase tensions and animosities between China and India, as now they're competing... Uh, due to the production cuts, these two Asian giants, who are some of the largest consumers of oil in the world, right up there with America, they're not being forced to share, but to compete over the same energy producers. 
Now, if the supply situation doesn't change, um, which it probably will in the next couple years, as we enter this uh, recovery phase from the lockdowns, people will say COVID, I say lockdown, uh, I'm right. But, we'll <laughs> but as countries around the world begin to recover and undo their lockdowns, um, they will see the oil situation probably improve as prices go up because the demand goes back up. But right now, uh, if the supply situation does not change, um, like say for whatever reason, uh, many countries continue to be locked down, or if oil demand grows in India and China, and this competition becomes a more long-term thing, then there's going to be problems in Asia. And I have right here in quote in parentheses that this is not going to end well, should that be the case. Now, the other reason uh, that this is important, being that India is the third largest consumer of crude in the world, and is simultaneously the third largest importer of that crude in the world. Now, America is a pretty big consumer of crude itself, but America has lots of domestic oil production. Again, we'll see where that goes with the Biden administration. Uh, it, it's not that the production is going to disappear, but it'll be greatly diminished with regulation and no more Keystone Pipeline. So, uh, America is going to be back on the importing market for... A, uh, actually, I didn't even think about that when I was writing these notes down. America, if its oil production is hampered, is going to be importing more oil, meaning that we're going to be eating up the same supply that China and India are trying to get at, which is going to further increase tensions between all three of them, and only one of them has domestic supplies to walk away from the situation. Wow. Isn't geopolitics a bitch? But... <laughs> So, although, <laughs> although um, the oh right, right, right the other reason that this is important, uh, India is the third largest consumer and importer of oil in the world, and although this move is likely to hurt Iraq more than India in the mid to long term, as India can just buy from other producers, um, they'll likely still be sharing the pool with China, and with the possibility that other OPEC members cut production more in the future to bring prices up, as we know that neither America or Russia are going to be cutting production willingly. Again, we'll see what Biden does, but the Russians definitely aren't cutting production, namely because if they do that, the wells are going to freeze over because they're in Siberia. So they're not cutting production, even though they're an OPEC member. And America is not in OPEC anyway, but due to America's consumption of its own energy, Russia is arguably more consequential in this situation. I digress. But uh, India and China, especially as India begins um, major uh, industrialization, as they... Yeah, major industrialization. They're kind of industrializing faster now. Uh, getting into like tech sector, they're trying to get their own like domestic tech sector and whatnot. I know that they produce m basically all of their own weapons. Well, well, they can. They do buy from foreign countries, but they produce their own weapons. So they have a domestic industries for a lot of things. And now that they're kind of industrializing, for uh, like m the modern iteration of the word, we're gonna see their dependency on oil increase. Um, and given that China is already up there in terms of their energy consumption, um, they're probably not going to want to share with India. Why would you want your greatest rival to industrialize faster with cheap energy? They already bought out, <laughs> they already bought out all of Iraq's oil for the year. So now that this competition is being kicked off. Uh, in the energy sector now, on top of all the other things, again, this is not going to end well. So, on, while we're on the topic of Sino-Indian geostrategic competition, oh, India 
is to send millions of vaccines to Burma and Bangladesh and Bhutan. Uh, again, we're taking pages out of Russia's handbook. Man, the Russians are really writing the rules on the geopolitical stage. Um, now, this is a move by the Indians meant to outmaneuver China in the region. And again, this is Indochina, so that would be Burma, Siam, uh, otherwise known as Thailand, uh, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, uh, Singapore, Malaysia, that general region, uh, technically including Bangladesh. But, yeah, I guess we'll include Bangladesh. So that region, that right there, that would be in, that's the Indochina region. So, it's this comp field of competition that sits right between China and India, um, on top of the Himalayas. Now, the, again, this is a move to counter China's influence in the region, and just as predicted, the Indochina region is already looking to be the most intensely disputed field of competition between the two Asian giants. I would argue it's going to be even more so than the Himalayas. Um, uh, well, un unless, well, you know, Nepal actually goes into civil war territory, um, which they are dangerously close to. Um, I wouldn't say that there's some sort of super partisan tribalism, but their prime minister dissolved the government, their parliament, and now their parliament is suing, and we'll see where they go from there. You could have parallel governments within the country where the parliament claims to be legitimate, and the prime minister, who currently has the backing of their president, will claim to be the legitimate government. And you could see that devolve into civil war territory, or at the very least, devolve into zones of foreign control where either China or India will back a certain side uh, and eventually that'll probably lead to them having troop presences in the region so and by region I mean in Nepal itself so there's that at least Bhutan is looking stable we'll see how long that lasts because um, they're caught between two tectonic plates geopolitically speaking anyway so the himalayas um are going to be a major point of contention especially as that's where china and india have direct borders but those are pretty big mountains so anything is going to be slowed down by the mountains indochina is going to be less so now there are mountains and jungles there but the field of competition is wider and the barriers aren't quite as you know impassable as, say, the largest mountain chain in the world. So the comp, the opportunity for legitimate conflict, and I mean armed conflict, is going to be greater here than they would in the Himalayas, and that's even when you count Kashmir, which is a point of contention between India, China, and Pakistan, on which Pakistan is slightly more on the Chinese side, be, out of purely anti-Indian sentiments. And those sentiments aren't going to change. That being said, I do expect uh, their competition to kind of be in the Indochina region, uh, like what the competition between the U.S. and the Soviets was, uh, kind of in Indochina and in Korea, but like in Europe as well. Uh so you're going to see eventually either they'll be picking sides um uh the countries in the region that would be Burma, that'd be Thailand. We'll see if Laos and Cambodia do get involved, although Cambodia is a part of China's string of pearls, so China has friendly port there. Vietnam um is kind of looking hostile towards China. And the main thing here is it's going to be different from the first Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviets. And this Cold War 2.0 um, is going to be fought on different dimensions, I would say. It's not going to be like hard blocks of allies, but more so different dimensions um, where, where interests overlap. Because 
what you see here in this region is that these countries align with China economically, but then align with India when it comes to their security needs. So if even though a whole host of these nations are signed on to the comprehensive um, trade deal that uh, which is RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Cooperation. Oh, I'll remember the name eventually. But it's this massive trade deal between most of East Asia, including Australia and New Zealand. They're all aligned with China economically, as China's a major trade partner. But then you have them turn around and side with India when it comes to military and defense. Japan has a 10-year military pact with India. Vietnam is working with India on security agreements. And we could see other countries step in on India's side, especially as China gets more belligerent and aggressive in the South China Sea. So, it's going to be very interesting trying to keep up with all the dimensions that this Cold War is going to be fought on. Um, but make no mistake, it's a Cold War and it will be fought. Now, we can hope and pray that it doesn't go into a hot war. Although the potential for that happening, I would argue, is greater than the U.S. and Soviet. Namely, because the two have a border with one another, where there is... It has already been direct conflict, uh, not just with fisticuffs, but legitimate armed conflict in the past where they were actually fighting a shooting war against one another. Now, both countries are more economically significant, far more economically significant than they were in the past, and they're much more involved in their regions, because if you think back to then... India had just got its independence from Britain and just fought a war against Pakistan um, because Pakistan wanted to be independent from India. Well, actually, no, they were independent, but then they fought a war to, over the border. So India, that India, fought a China who was fractured prior to World War II. Uh, they just finished fighting a civil war uh they just finished being occupied by the Japanese, losing tens of millions of people. Then they just finished fighting a civil war where the communists won. Uh, a civil war that to this day isn't really concluded because the nationalist Chinese retreated to an island. You may know it as Taiwan. So we're talking that China and that India, that China who just occupied Tibet, they fought an armed conflict against one another, and it was just between those two. Now we're looking at a more developed and more matured India and China who have consolidated much more power. They're not new governments anymore. They're old, well, kind of old, and in control, and they have friends now. They're reaching out to their neighbors now, which means more potential for competition, more potential for regional uh, economic and military alliances, more potential for a Cold War to go hot, especially given their history with one another and the fact that they currently hate each other right now. Oh, very, very interesting things to look out for. I thought it was very interesting that Iraq... What this country who we don't even think of when thinking about this massive geopolitical struggle between China and India, Iraq ended up kickstarting something that's probably going to play out over the next couple decades as well, which is competition over energy. Because neither India or China have enough energy within their borders, uh, and we're talking fossil fuels to supply themselves. They have to get it from other countries. They have to go out elsewhere and get it. China wants to try to tap the South China Sea. Um, India is very proximate to the Middle East. Now, with Belt and Road, China could potentially have a land route to the Middle East, and they're already agreeing to pipelines with Russia, so they're solving the issue. 
And we'll see whether or not India gets around to solving the issue as well. Because right now they're looking like if we're going to go down the line a couple decades or even just a couple years, they're going to be far more vulnerable to shocks to the energy supply than, say, China. Because China, even though it may not become self-sufficient in energy in the next couple of years, they can mitigate the loss via pipelines with Russia, Belt and Road, where you can have a land route to ship the oil um, through Russian territory or potentially through Central Asia eventually to get that oil to China. And maybe even if they're able to get hegemony in, or at least become a regional hegemon, uh, they can tap the South China Sea, which the Indian Navy can't quite reach without friendly ports. But they have to go through China. Because China has friendly ports um, in Cambodia. And we'll see if they get other friendly ports. Because they all have a friendly port in Sri Lanka as well, which is right off the coast of India. So they can harass any Indian attempt to get into the South China Sea, but there is talk of India militarizing an island chain um, right at the entrance to the what, the Malacca Straits. There we go. Uh, and these islands are... What are we? Let's see, I got my trusty map. The Andaman and Nicobar Islands. They are right there south of Myanmar slash Burma. They're right there blocking any exit or entrance to the Straits of Malacca through the, well, through the Bay of Bengal or through the Andaman Sea. There's talk of them militarizing those islands, which would be a massive counter move, geopolitically speaking, to Chinese influence in the region. Because uh, it would effectively allow the Indians, without having control over the Malacca Straits, to control the Malacca Straits. And you would have to go either around, or pay up, or get searched and seized by the Indians, if you wanted to get in. And a lot of China's energy shipments come by sea, from the Middle East, which means sailing by India, and sailing by those Andaman Islands, through the Straits of Malacca, and then up to China from the south so should they do that they would not only strangle china's energy supply their contemporary energy route but they would also have de facto control over whether or not the chinese could get to their friendly ports in bangladesh and sri lanka i'm sure the indians would be more than happy to tell the chinese to go back the way they came should that be the case so major moves are being made uh, between these two, and you can see off of that where I come from when I say there's great potential, greater potential for conflict between the two, because neither one can afford to give an inch. In the Cold War, the Soviets had strategic depth uh, beyond their borders, on top of within their borders, and the United States was an ocean away from anything and everything. And we saw how crazy the two went when the U.S. put nukes in Turkey and when the Soviets put nukes on Cuba. We saw how crazy the two went. Now imagine if they had a land border. Oh, would you look at that? India and China have a land border. Imagine if every inch in, say, Indochina, if every inch that you give up gives you, gets your enemy that much closer to your borders, what are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to freak out. You're going to have a panic attack. And you're going to do something crazy. Or at least you'll have the very high potential of doing something crazy. China can't afford to lose Tibet. Which means they can't afford to cede ground or allow Indian influence into Tibet. Which means they cannot surrender in Nepal or Bhutan. India cannot allow the Chinese a foothold on the other side of the Himalayan mountains. On India's side of the Himalayan mountains, they cannot allow the Chinese to get that close. The Himalayas are their only physical barrier between them. They cannot afford to give an inch in Nepal or Bhutan, especially with Pakistan sitting there in their west. Neither side can afford to give an inch, and Iraq has just highlighted a new field of competition that the two are going to be locked in 
for the foreseeable future. You see why every little bit counts. Every little bit counts. It's truly incredible. This web, this web of interconnected um, events and dependencies and moves and counter moves that we live in in our world. And I'll kind of outline that a little bit more as we get into our closing thoughts in just a minute. All right, we're back getting into our closing thoughts and I kind of wanted to outline just how deep and intertangled this web of geopolitics is and how truly impressive it is when you kind of take a step back and look at how everything that everyone does impacts someone else somewhere. Because like, I personally would have never thought that Iraq, um, instead of like Arabia or Iran, or the United Arab Emirates, their oil supply, Iraq's oil supply, and the limitations that they put on other people would trigger this this sensitive point between China and India. I would have never expected that to happen, but it did. And for reasons completely unrelated to what's going on between China and India, Iraq needs higher oil prices, and Iraq wasn't even the one to decide to do this. It was OPEC. It was OPEC. And Iraq said, you know what? We we could use some higher oil prices. We're going to restrict exports to all Asian uh, markets. And then the Chinese bought prepaid $2.5 billion, and India gets 10 to 20% cuts to their energy import from Iraq. Well to their big refineries. And if the refineries are that big, then you can imagine that that's going to be a lot of fuel and other oil-related products that are now not going to be able to be made for India. It's just truly incredible when you have the time and then you take the time to see how everything that everyone does impacts others. Um, and this point of contention... I'm just really shocked <laughs> that Iraq did this. I, I can't get over it. Iraq did this, and now it's going to make this competition between China and India potentially worse moving forward. Especially because India is going to be more vulnerable in the future. Uh, the route to the Middle East is shorter, but what good is that going to do you if the Chinese buy up the supply before you can get? You know? It's, it's ridiculous and very interesting to watch. I wasn't even thinking about what reduced energy production in America was going to do. Uh, now we're, we're going to see the Americans importing a little bit more. Uh, and that's probably going to come from Iraq and Arabia. If it's not going to come from Canada anyway. Not with the Keystone Pipeline essentially canceled. So that's not going to come from Canada. So that leaves the Middle East. So you have three of the largest consumers competing for the same energy producers. And again, only one of them has the ability to walk away from the situation if it gets really bad. And that's America. But America being involved makes it worse for the other two. And the situation being worse for the other two makes it worse for them. Makes the tensions go higher. Ah. <sighs> Geopolitics. Oh, well. Uh, I'm at a loss for words. I'm, st I'm still stuck on Iraq being responsible for something. I'm sure the Iraqis never expected to, you know, be the bad guy <laughs> in, in an episode on someone's geopolitical podcast. But in light of all this ridiculousness going on in the world... Light spots and dark spots, it's good to find something you can enjoy. Which is why I will be re-watching the latest episode of Attack on Titan, because that show is amazing. But, that being said, I that's all I have for today. And I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. And as we always say, the world is changing, folks. And we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. 
So till we meet again next Monday, servus.